Through Albert, the Tumor Brass, and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, this Monday edition, making his weekly appearance, is the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. The last week now, uh, the last week or so, has brought the first couple of transactions leading up to the trade deadline at the end of July. One of those, a move which saw Scott Feldman go to the Baltimore Orioles uh, from the Chicago Cubs, is not discussed in what follows. Uh, not at all, really. Uh, well, perhaps uh, Scott Feldman's name is mentioned, but only in passing. We'll say only in passing. Uh, in fact, much of what follows, though, uh, much of the content is dedicated to the trade by the Miami Marlins uh, to the Los Angeles Dodgers of Ricky Nolasco. Ricky Nolasco. Generally speaking, when uh, the Marlins are invoked on Fangraphs Audio, it is generally to discuss their spending habits. Uh, in this edition of Fangraphs Audio, is not an exception. Between 2010 and 2012, of course, the Miami Marlins entered an agreement uh, both with Major League Baseball and also the Players Association to increase their payroll every year leading up to the opening of their new ballpark. That agreement expired this offseason, and perhaps uh, not coincidentally, the Marlins have liquidated their roster of talent or at least much of the talent that they uh, formerly had. This, of course, is uh, just merely an introduction, though, to that conversation. Rest assured that it's uh, very compelling for people of all sorts, guaranteed. This Fangraphs Audio features managing editor Dave Cameron. It begins right now. dog present now, Cameron? You've had, last week we talked, there was no dog, now there is a dog. There is a dog. She's currently at my feet whining because I have her in a harness with a leash attached, and we haven't really leashed her much in our first few days, so this is kind of a new experience for her not to be able to go wherever she wants to go. Okay. Not, not a big fan. Okay, and uh, she's leashed, what, to the chair or something? No, in my hand. I mean, I'm just holding the leash in my hand. I figured I would just walk around the backyard with her while we recorded the podcast. But so far, we're not really walking around the backyard as much as we are chewing on the leash. Well, really, she's chewing on the leash. I'm oh, holding okay. the leash. Oh, so you're, you're yeah. going to be in your backyard. This you're doing. You're going to be conducting this from the outdoors. This, the, the, yes, this I think uh, if we conducted it from the indoors, there's a good chance by the end of the podcast, I would have to be cleaning things. Oh, is that right? We have a situation. Yeah. Oh, okay. Which is, you know, an eight-week-old puppy. So. Yeah. All right. And she. Uh, all right. Well, this is good. But you're uh, generally is she. Is she brought any joy into your life? She has brought joy and a lack of sleep. Really? Yeah, I mean, you know, she has to go to the restroom every couple hours. And, uh, and thankfully, my wife, well, that was not my oh, sorry. sorry. Um, I'm actually uh, pet sitting simultaneously. <laughs> so we're having a meeting of the dogs, except my dog doesn't know how to bark yet. Is that right? When did they learn that? Uh, they took a few months. Like, right now, she knows how to whine, but she doesn't know how to bark. Okay, yeah. Which, we're okay with that. I mean, I'm okay with, you know, not a lot of barking. But right. she's good at whining. She's, she's got that part down. Oh, okay. All right. Um, do you feel like she learned it from watching you? Uh, it seems likely that she's gotten that from me, mm-hmm. despite the fact she's only known me for four days, and I'm pretty sure she whined before she met me. But, yeah. okay. you know, we're going to assume that it came from me anyway. Let's do that um, anyways. Uh, yeah. Let's talk about uh, – let's see. Let's, let's create a – I'm going to construct a masterful segue here. Uh, one thing that people whine about, maybe, uh, is the Miami Marlins, Dave Cameron. I don't know about the whining. This is constructive criticism. Okay, yeah, all right. Um, well, let's let's start with the trade. Uh, uh, now we know. Uh, I know that Jeff Sullivan wrote a post about Ricky Nolasco. Was it last week, sometime? Yeah, the end of the week before. Yeah. Right. Okay, the end of the week before. It. I guess um, in advance of the situation exactly like the one that unfolded, or similar to the one that unfolded. 
Right. I mean, basically, he wrote about Ricky Nolasco. Since we understood that Nolasco was going to be traded, we just kind of did a, here's what Ricky Nolasco is for whoever ends up trading for him. Right. Now, when you knew, you know, you knew that uh, Ricky Nolasco was available, what was your sort of, what did you envision as the most likely scenario? I, you don't necessarily have to be specific teams, but in terms of the return that the Marlins would be getting. Well, I think what what we saw is basically what we expected. The Marlins had choices. They could have either picked up a significant part of the remainder of his contract, which was five and a half million for the rest of the year, uh, in order to get some decent prospects. Uh, Ken Rosenthal's reported that the Rockies, among other teams, have made similar offers or that kind of offer. Or they could just dump the contract and get nothing back. I mean, I think when you're looking at kind of a middle rotation starter with a decent sized contract, you know, eleven and a half million for the total year isn't. Uh, you know, it's not the huge albatross like a you know a Vernon Wells contract was, but it's a decent amount of money. You're not going to get both salary relief and prospects. So we were pretty sure the Marlins would have to pick between the two, and you know, being the Marlins, they picked the cash. Right? Does they pick the cash? Uh, do we have a sense uh, on average um, how often teams choose the one or the other? Well, I think it's a, it's, it's tough to say historically because the new CBA. I mean, I don't know how long we can call it the new CBA. It's been in effect for a year and a half now, but the current CBA. Uh, has kind of changed the calculation where it used to be you didn't really need to uh, pick up cash or pick up salary in order to obtain prospects. You could just go spend whatever cash you saved by dumping a player on international free agents or in the draft. You could just physically reallocate that money yourself. So trading for cash kind of was the same thing as trading for prospects. That's not really true anymore. Now there's spending limits and allocation pools. The only way to really buy prospects anymore is to eat salary in order to get better return from another team. And so you basically are paying someone to play from some other team in order to improve your return in trade. Uh, I think that's a more common thing since the new CBA started uh, and is going to continue to be a common thing with teams that are looking to bolster their farm system. Uh, apparently Marlins don't, don't care so much about bolstering their farm system. Right. And so, uh, have we seen a team just totally – I mean, we can, we're going to discuss the finer points of this particular trade. Have we seen a team – just go all in for savings before. I mean, even in even I guess you know even last summer was that a, was that a case? Not really. I mean, uh, the Marlins are kind of the only team that's uh, prioritizing profits over all else, and that's why uh, they're kind of the team that has been disciplined by Major League Baseball or they're getting, giving guidance by Major League Baseball that they can't just keep not spending money that they get from revenue sharing. Uh, I think most other teams in baseball are more interested in acquiring talent in order to win. The Marlins are kind of the outlier here. If you can, I guess, what the Marlins have done, uh, so we, so what we've established so far, they traded away Ricky Nolasco. Uh, we know they right. got three prospects back. We can discuss the quality of those prospects perhaps in a moment. Um, but what they've done is essentially they have five and a half, uh, f- roughly fewer million dollars on their books right now. Yeah. Okay. They basically paid five and a half million dollars that they would have had to pay Nolasco the rest of the year. Now, what the, what the Marlins are doing, because one way – to to make money, I guess, is what the Marlins are doing, right? Which is just to have more money coming in. I mean, that's always the way to make a profit is to have more money coming in. But they're doing it by losing. I wonder if a team could win frequently, uh, is that a more profitable motto? But maybe, uh, um, obviously, it's uh, less assured because you have to depend on winning. Right. So that's basically the trade-off. I think if you can be the Yankees and you can win 27 World Championships and you can, you know, have your own network, that's the most profitable avenue to uh, success in Major League Baseball. You can raise the franchise valuation and then eventually if you want to sell it for billions of dollars, you can do that. But that requires 
a lot of good fortune in the Yankees' case being around for 110 years and dominating when there are only eight teams in the league. Not every team can do that. Uh, so instead of going the Yankee model, the more safe, uh, more sure way is to spend just a, you know, kind of not the bare minimum, but spend a little bit, uh, roll in the national television revenue and the revenue sharing money you get. Don't risk any of the profits that you're basically guaranteed and do as well as you can under those constraints. It's, it's not a great uh, way for major baseball teams to operate, except for it works. Well, how many teams could theoretically do that before the entire system crumbled? Yeah, I mean, that was part of the reason why uh, the Players Association was given the power to kind of uh, appeal to the commissioner's office to make teams spend money. I think, you know, what we saw 10 years ago when the revenue-sharing plans were implemented is uh, a decent amount of teams took this path. The Pittsburgh Pirates, the Minnesota Twins, there were, there were a number of teams that spent as little as possible and just cashed the revenue-sharing checks. The Marlins are the team doing it the most egregiously now, but they didn't invent this idea. Uh, and I think what we've seen is as teams kind of took advantage of the system, uh, the Players Association in their collective bargaining rights said, hey, you know, if you've got money flowing to these teams, they need to spend it. And uh, they've agreed to some kind of system that allows them to appeal to the commissioner to force these teams to spend more money, at least temporarily. Okay. And now when the, when the Marlins are negotiating a deal like this, uh, their GM is Michael Hill. Is that is that still the case? Correct. By the way, probably the the most anonymous of GMs. Yes. Okay. Uh, uh, Michael Hill, et, et cetera, maybe, or maybe not Michael Hill, who knows, is the idea t- uh, to call around um, and say, we want to trade Ricky Nolasco to you, or perhaps teams are asking either way, and then the Marlins will say, we will take the best deal uh, we're offered uh, that does not require that we take up, uh, pick up any of Ricky Nolasco's salary. Yeah, I mean, I think it's tough to know exactly what the conversations are because we don't know where the line is between what the baseball operations side dictates and what the ownership side dictates. There's uh, some reason to believe that the people in the baseball operations side led by Michael Hill uh, are, you know, just like any other GM. They're competitive. They want to win. They're trying to put together rosters to win uh, or as much as they can anyway. They're, they're not necessarily uh, concerned with lining the pockets of upper management, but if upper management tells them, you are not allowed to take on salary when you trade Ricky Nolasco away. Their hands are somewhat tied. And so we don't know that Jeffrey Laurie and David Sampson told them, hey, make a trade for Ricky Nolasco, but you can't take back any salary. Uh, you know, that's not the worst guess in the world, but it is a guess. I mean, you know, we're certainly uh, uninformed in this situation. But uh, based on reports and based on what other teams have done, it seems likely uh, or, you know, uh, essentially uh, a given that if the Marlins would have picked up some of the Nolasco salary, they could have gotten more talent in return. If your goal is to rebuild your talent, your organization with talent, it would seem like this would make sense. The only real logical reason why they didn't do that is ownership telling them not to. You know, in terms of incentives, this is a, a slight digression, but still relevant at some level. Uh, in terms of incentives, we discussed two paths that uh, teams might attempt to pursue. Uh, one would be, uh, like as you mentioned, the Yankees. Of course, there are other teams on this path, which is if you win a lot of games, uh, this is good uh, because you, you get money from all different sources. You also, I suppose, improve the brand. Uh, people want to um, people want to associate with your team that's winning. Alternatively, there's the, there's this method we're discussing with regard to the Marlins, uh, which you said was utilized by uh, by other teams as well, especially throughout the 90s or early aughts, uh, Pirates and Twins. Um, what 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 is the model we say that the Rays have, if, if those are two different ways? The Rays win all the time, and yet uh, they 
uh, they have very barely any followers. Except I think it's just uh, I think literally everyone who's a fan writes at draisebay.com. I believe that's true. Yeah. Yes. Uh, the, so I think the Rays are kind of the example of the best you can be running this low revenue model. And you know we can you know it's probably a whole other podcast discussing whether the Rays have to be a low revenue model or not. Uh, you know they're certainly in a uh, a poor stadium situation. They're, they don't draw very well. Uh, Tampa Bay may or may not be a good baseball town, depending on how you wanted to define, you know, a fan base. Uh, but I think what we've seen is the Rays are showing that you can win with moderate payrolls. But the Rays, you know, for all their uh, acumen, uh, are running a decent-sized payroll. They gave Evan Longoria a $150 million extension. Uh, you know, they, they've kept David Price, even as his salary has ballooned to $10 million in arbitration. They're not just running a $30 million payroll like the Marlins are right now. Right. And um, unlike the Marlins, they're not they're not working out of a new park, which, as we've seen, a park alone is not going uh, to sustain attendances, um, but it could perhaps be a, uh, could be a catalyst uh, for increased attendances. Yeah, I mean, there's no question that there's a new park boom, and you know the Marlins fought last year with their attendance put up by 10,000 fans a game. Uh, you know, if you open a new ballpark, you will attract people who didn't come to the old ballpark. There's a curiosity effect and. Uh, there's certainly kind of a new park smell, but it wears off after a couple of years, especially if you're bad. So if you can get people into the new park, put a good product on the field, win some games, maybe you can keep and retain a, a, a larger percentage of the, the people who come. But if you do what the Marlins did, you uh, milk them out of their, their tax money to build a stadium, then you put a terrible team on the field and trade away all the players they know about, they're all going to leave, and you're going to be left with a brand-new stadium and no one to watch it in. Now, um, with regard to this trade specifically, and, and now what's going to happen afterwards, we know that, uh, as you mentioned in your, in your piece from today, from I think it was what, 2010 to 2012, the uh, what you, did you just make your way outside? Is that what's happening, Cameron? Uh, no, I was just chasing the dog around the house. Oh, okay. Uh, so you've uh, so 2010 to 2012, uh, there was a, an agreement, I suppose, between Major League Baseball and yeah. or the Players Association. Yes, and the Marlins. All three parties entered into a combined agreement. A combined agreement that the Marlins, uh, in the years leading up to the construction and opening of their new stadium, uh, would increase their payroll. Now, that, that agreement ended in uh, after 2012, and yep. so did uh, the Marlins' commitment, I mean, com- conspicuously, uh, to, to sustaining a highish payroll. Yeah, basically the Marlins said, hey, you know, now that we've been chastised by Major League Baseball for not spending enough money, we will agree over the next three years to raise our payroll, which they did. And then as soon as that three-year term ended, they cut it by $60 million. Now, there's always, there's always what? There's always some sort of, because you, you discussed the, the possible wisdom or not of a uh, payroll minimum. Yeah. Yeah. Now, there is it, not even so much a payroll minimum; it's just a spending minimum. A spending minimum. Now, there's something yeah. right because it could also be applied to maybe to draft picks, etc. Right. Yeah. Uh, um, what What are the sort of constraints placed on teams, um, like you know, like the Marlins? Uh, now that now that for the Marlins specifically, that agreement from 2010 to 2012 is gone. Yeah. So under the CBA, what it basically says is the spirit of the revenue sharing agreement is that the money that they receive from the other teams will be reinvested in the product. So they're not allowed to give it to owners as a you know disbursement of profit. They can't spend it to pay down loans on you know 
uh, debts they've collected in terms of building stadiums. They can't use it for uh, capital projects. They basically have to use it on players. This is kind of what it says. Uh, if they don't do that, the Players Association can file a grievance with the commissioner's office like they did three years ago and say, hey, you need to make them spend more money. And then at that point, the commissioner's office, which gets access to their books, looks at their spending and says, you're spending X percent on this. You need to make it X plus 15 percent or whatever and kind of orders them to spend their money in a different way. Okay. Now, as you note in this piece, the Marlins actually are spending some money. Uh, much of it is on players who are not currently on the team. Yeah, about a third of their payroll now is uh, uh, players on the Blue Jays and Marlins. But I assume that there's, uh, what, an expiration next year or whatever? I mean, it's going to be done with this, after the season. Yeah, the, the Heath Bell, uh, I think, was $8 million this year, and I don't believe they're picking up any of the contract next year. If they are, it's a smaller amount. Uh, and then the $4 million they sent to the Blue Jays and the Jose Reyes, Josh Johnson, Mark Burley trade was just for this year. That was a one-time payment. Okay. Now, it's interesting that um, some of the language that uh, you quoted from, from that agreement, which was the, the spirit of revenue sharing. Right. Uh, I suppose that uh, spirit of uh, works fine in terms of uh, relationships uh, between uh, friends, for example. Um, but it seems as though the Marlins, and Jeffrey Loria, et cetera, are dedicated to, uh, I guess, um, it seems as though it, it, it's uh, difficult to get them to, to do anything unless there is actually a specific request directed at them, at least as, as, as it would appear to us. I mean, I think, you know, we saw them, they spent money last year when they uh, were interested in selling the new stadium and kind of making that something that people wanted to come to. I think what, what we see is you know, Jeff Roy is a really good businessman, which is why he's a very rich man. He is willing to do things that increase his bottom line, which is what most businessmen do. But most major baseball owners kind of have competing uh, interests where they want to increase their bottom line and they want to win. It seems like, in Loria's case, the slant is much more towards the bottom line and much less towards winning. If winning happens because, uh, you know, they, they happen to put a good team on the field, that's great. But he's not going to sacrifice the bottom line in order to try and win. Is there any value uh, besides the, the potential revenue it could produce um, or, I guess, like the uh, potential, yeah, I mean, through merchandise or ticket sales in the future, TV deals in the future. Um, is there any advantage, is there any sort of value or a way to evaluate this sort of um, gains that are produced by trying to win, by by telegraphing to the other 29 owners, to the league, to the fans that you're trying to win? Well, I think if you're if if you're not sure if there's things to be gained by winning, you probably should know the major league franchise. I think that should be like kind of an entry question like mm-hmm. on your application to buy a team. Do you see value in winning? If, if your answer is I'm not sure, you know, the process should probably end at that point and you should be moved on. I mean, I think Major League Baseball, they have to be owned by very rich men. The teams do. Uh, but at the same time, you want very rich men who are not solely interested or primarily interested, at least, in becoming even richer. A Major League Baseball's goal should be to have owners of the teams who – want to put a good product on the field, who want to compete, who want to grow the game as a whole, who want to grow their markets individually, uh, who want to help their fan base achieve what the fan base really cares about. And the fan base, what the fan base does not care about is the owner's profit margin. Uh, if Jeffrey Loria's primary concern uh, is the lining of his own pockets, he shouldn't be owning a major league team. Well, but he does own one, though. He does. It's unfortunate. And, it, you know, I think... When we look back at Bud Selig's legacy, there's probably more good than bad. I, I don't, I'm not a huge Bud Selig fan, but I think if you look at some of the things that have been enacted under his commissionership, 
there's some really good things. And the game has prospered. It's doing really well financially. The way that he has let Jeffrey Loria ruin franchises and multiple franchises uh, and has been complicit in that and helping Loria buy the Marlins uh, is probably going to be the biggest black mark on, on Felix Reign as a commissioner. Now, is that just a matter of their 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 friends? Or are they friends? Do we know? Are they friends? Or is it something uh, more complicated? Yeah, I'm sure it's more complicated. I mean, I think, uh, you know, not that we know the inner workings of the commissioner-owner relationships, but there's been enough reports that probably give us some credence to the idea that Felix likes owners who will toe the line. And so, you know, there's a reason Mark Cuban doesn't own a baseball team. There's a reason that these guys who are outspoken uh, get fined fairly regularly. Um, generally, it seems like the commissioner has handpicked a set of owners who will uh, support him on decisions uh, and kind of go along with the the ideas that he's promoting. He doesn't want uh, you know free spirits out there just saying whatever they want. He's going to hand tech owners who uh, will go with him on on big pushes. And Loria, by all accounts, is a good soldier for Bud Selig. Except for the fact that he seems to be demonstrating uh, considerable hubris. No, uh, by uh, I sort of. Uh flaunting uh, moves like this in the face of what is you know uh, revenue sharing etc yeah i mean i think this is probably a bigger deal to people who leave fangrass and listen to fangrass podcasts and it is to the crowd as a whole i mean i think if you're a casual fan you've probably never heard of ricky alaska if you're looking at win loss record in the vra inside he's not very good and you're not going to be outraged that the marlins traded away a mediocre pitcher who makes eleven and a half million dollars like i think the there's not a huge PR fallout that comes from trading away a guy like Ricky Nolasco before he becomes a free agent. Uh, you know, the, the PR hits they take are, you know, when they traded Hanley Ramirez, when they traded Jose Reyes and Josh Johnson and Mark Burley, and they're going to get a PR hit when they trade Giancarlo Stanton. Those are the ones that I think uh, take some hubris and really um, cause some problems for Major League Baseball. Moves like this are probably an example of, things that are wrong, but it's not something that the public as a whole is going to say, man, that guy's got some serious cojones. Right. So now listen, uh, um, but they would use the word cojones if they were going to discuss it, we can assume. The pub- public does love to use the word cojones. Oh, they do. They're way into it. Uh, the uh, um, So far as the Dodgers are concerned, they now have Ricky Nolasco, um, yeah. which is probably good for them um, because uh, they only have – uh, well, let's see. They, uh, they had entering the season what looked like a rather formidable pitching staff. Um, however, I believe Chad Billingsley is no part, uh, no longer part of it this season. Um, and Zach Greinke uh, is not really pitching like Zach Greinke. Uh, and so basically it's what? it's uh, At this point, is it just Clayton Kershaw, uh, Ryu, and then uh, – I, I mean, there's always the potential that Greinke will be very good, but uh, I mean, that's uh, that's it at this point, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, they started the year with uh, eight starters, and there was all this talk about, oh, man, how are they going to fit all these starters in their station? But the, the four at the back end weren't, weren't great. I mean, when you're talking about Ted Lilly and Aaron Harang and Chris Capuano, uh, you know, you're not dealing with super high-quality starters. So Alaska is going to be an upgrade. They've been using Stephen Fife, who's actually, I think, going to stay in the rotation. Capuano is the one who's getting bumped to the bullpen in order to make room for Alaska. Uh, but, you know, these are not high, high-end high starters that uh, – you know, were super valuable, and Alaska's not going to be an upgrade on. I think the Dodgers really did need another kind of inning leader starting pitcher. Uh, obviously, with Kershaw and Granke and Ryu, they had the potential for a very good playoff rotation. Alaska's not going to be counted on to pitch two play, two games in the series, unless Granke ends up on the disabled list, and even then, probably not. Uh, so I think, you know, for the Dodgers, this is about solidifying the back end of the rotation, trying to run down the National League West title and get into the playoffs. 
<clears throat> right. So uh, I guess from Nalasco, was he being Ricky Nalasco again this year? Uh, traditionally, he's the player who's most thwarted, I suppose, in the way that in years past, uh, what, Matt Cain perhaps uh, has uh, has outperformed his defense independent numbers. Uh, Ricky Nalasco has sort of been the case study uh, in the opposite direction. Uh, was, he, was he doing yeah. that again this year? No, this year he's actually kind of flipped. He's, uh, he's, uh, ERA is better than his FIP, which is the, the first time in his career. Uh, and this is something Jeff covered in his post he wrote, uh, you know, a couple weeks ago at this point. Uh, but basically, Nolasco looks like a pretty similar pitcher to what he's been in the past. His ERA is lower, but, you know, based on the fact that we're seven, eight hundred innings into his professional career, we probably shouldn't expect that Nolasco is fixed to whatever problems he had before. Uh, you know, we should have regressed his, his ERA fit defense previously, but we should probably still expect that he's maybe a little bit worse than his tip indicates. Maybe he's not good at pitching with, uh, you know, runners on base and, uh, pitching out of the stretch. Maybe there's just some mental breakdown he has when, uh, there's pressure on him from having a runner on second and third. Whatever it is, you should probably expect Alaska to slightly underperform his peripherals in the future. Uh, but he's not doing that this year, and, you know, that's probably one of the reasons that he was, uh, uh, a decent trade chip for the Marlins, despite the fact they didn't get anything for him. And uh, so then, will the uh, will the Dodgers be a playoff team? Then uh, it, it seems as though, uh, despite the fact that they were what, they were like something like ten games out a month ago, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, they're they're less than that now. Yes, I think the NL West is a division of mediocrity. There is no real good team in that division. Uh, the Diamondbacks might be the best team overall. Uh, uh, the Dodgers are probably the best, most talented team, but you know they've certainly had their struggles. Uh, one of those two teams is probably going to win the division. The Giants have some talent, but have also had some uh, serious problems. Uh, you know, Matt Cain, who you just mentioned, is finally uh, getting lit up by the, the home run ball after, you know, seven or eight years of not giving up home runs. Angel Pagan is out for the season. Uh, you know, so the Giants are a flawed team. The Rockies, without Troy Tulowitzki, are not that good. Uh, his health is always a question mark. Um, you know, I think the Padres are not good at all. So I think that division is certainly winnable. The Dodgers have a chance to make a run and, and sneak it back into the playoffs, even though they dug themselves a really large hole just because they they play in a bad division. Right, so they dug themselves a hole, and now they have Ricky Nolasco, who's going to um, help, probably help their pitching staff a little bit. Uh, uh, it's curious that you mentioned we, we have in the Dodgers a team that, uh, as you say, began the season with something like eight starters. And, uh, of course, you have people saying, oh, they, they have too many starters. Uh, we will sometimes hear uh, GM say there's no such thing as too many too many starters or too many pitchers. Um, it really does appear to be a case that this is perhaps a, uh, uh, an instance that reveals to us that regardless of how many starters, pitchers, whatever you start, you begin the season with, uh, you'll likely end up needing, or there's a very strong possibility uh, that you'll need more uh, before the season ends. Yeah, I mean, I think you know every team should go in looking at at least having six starters that you're confident in, in pitching in a major league in any given season, as long as you're trying to win. I mean, if you're just rebuilding, then you can have zero like the Astros do. But, you know, if you're trying to win, you should have at least six. And the reality is you're probably going to need seven or eight or maybe even nine uh, to get you throughout the year. Uh, so in the Dodgers' case, they might have had eight names, but they shouldn't have counted on Ted Lilly or Chad Billingsley or Aaron Harang uh, to be giant parts of their rotation. So it's not that shocking that a team that started the year with eight proven veterans several of whom were proven to be fairly mediocre or injured, uh, needed to go out and get another starter midsummer because this is what pitchers do. They break down or they're bad or they're inconsistent. Uh, pitchers are, are flaky and you shouldn't count on them. So uh, we spent a considerable amount of time talking about Ricky Nolasco, the Dodgers, uh, this being, of course, um, not the first, but um, one of the first because it was also, this, of course, the Scott Feldman move, um, um, which proved to be the first of the um, – 
the trades leading up to the to the break. Uh, what what is the what's sort of inevitable at this point in terms of moves that are likely to happen again? I know you mentioned Chase Utley to the A's as the one move that has to happen or most obvious uh, most obvious to happen. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a move that I, that I think makes a lot of sense for both franchises. But, you know, there are other teams that are interested in Chase Utley as well. The Blue Jays have a whole second base. If they decide to be buyers, you could see them maybe going after Utley. If the Royals delude themselves into thinking they're buyers, they could maybe go after Chase Utley. So uh, I do think Utley should be moved by the Phillies. Uh, the A's actually just called up Grant Green today, who's uh, one of their better prospects, plays second base. Not very well, but he does play it. Uh, they're going to give him a chance there. I wouldn't be surprised if they called him up now kind of to see if he could talk them out of trading for Chase Utley, if he has a, a really good three-week stretch, maybe they'll uh, hold on to him and give him this, the job for the second half. If he falls in the face, maybe they'll be more aggressive in going after a guy like Utley. Uh, but I think the most obvious trade, and one that's probably going to happen this week or you know maybe during the All-Star break next week, is Matt Garza is going to get traded by the Cubs. We've already seen the Cubs trade away. Uh, Scott Airston and Scott Feldman, um, you know, they've made, I think, four of the six trades that have happened in the last week or two. Uh, the Cubs are certainly going to move Garza. The only question is, you know, to which team he's going to go and what they're going to get in return for him. But he's become the number one trade chip on the market. Uh, and teams looking for pitching are probably going to overpay in order to get him. Okay. And, uh, just with regard to the Phillies, I mean, Utley going uh, – Utley's in the last year of his contract, yes? Yes. Okay. So uh, trading Utley, Chase Utley makes, makes some degree of sense. I'm curious, though, with regard to a team like the Phillies, uh, which even if Utley leaves will have, um, you know, considerable bit of veteran talent signed after the season – um, at least for the possibility of signing after the season. Do we see the Phillies? Well, here's, so here's an interesting. There's sort of an interesting case, right? Because last year, or we have sort of a, an idea of team of a team blowing up, right? Or the a general manager blowing up a team uh, for the purposes of rebuilding. Uh, on the other hand, we had last year the Red Sox. Uh, they um, they executed a midseason trade, which saw them get rid of a lot of payroll. Uh, then they. They essentially respent all that money during this offseason, and whether those were the right moves or not, those Red Sox are in first place at this point. Uh, so that's a, um, I, I suppose that's um, that's an endorsement for that move. Um, are the Phillies going to do one or the other of those things, where perhaps they could trade away some players now, uh, but would restock? Or alternatively to all these things, is there any merit to blowing up a team and rebuilding if we see teams like the Red Sox, for example? Uh, sort of doing a, a modified version of that and succeeding the very next season. Yeah, I mean, I think the Red Sox are a tough case because most teams in baseball can't run a $180 million payroll or $170 million payroll, whatever Boston spent. So in their case, you know, they basically traded away a large amount of contracts and then just reallocated those to new players. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, as good as Shane McCarito and, and Mike Napoli have been, uh, and Ryan Benster, you know, they've been solid role players. The reason the Red Sox are in first place is, John Lackey. I mean, you know, no one wants to talk about it, but John Lackey's been a, uh, not quite an ace, but a very good starting pitcher after he didn't even pitch them last year. Uh, really solidified their rotation in a way that, you know, they severely needed last year. Um, so, you know, I think that was an example of, you know, maybe the Red Sox uh, being the, in a position to take advantage of some good fortune that not every other team is going to have a guy come back from surgery and pitch as well as John Lackey has. I don't think you can just say, trade away all your expensive players, sign some free agents, and you're going to win. Uh, and I think in the Phillies case, they're probably not going to do that. I mean, Ryan Howard's untradeable. Cliff Lee is tradable, but, you know, probably isn't going to get the return that they would want unless they picked up a large part of his salary just because he doesn't make $25 million a year and he has a pitcher on the wrong side of 30. So you're not going to get premium, premium prospects from a team who's also taking on that kind of contract. Uh, my guess is the Phillies are going to look at it and say, 
we're, we're probably not going to make Chase Elliott a qualifying offer. I think you can make a case that they should, uh, but they probably wouldn't just because $14 million a year for a second baseman whose uh, skills are eroding and has some injury problems is probably a little too much for most teams. So I think you'll probably see them trade Chase Utley. Uh, you'll probably see them trade Jonathan Dabalon if they can. That's the one salary that they could probably get off the books for next year uh, and the year after if they wanted to move Dabalon. Um but I don't think you're going to see them just blow it up, start over, and try and do what the Red Sox did. Right. Okay. Hey, well, that was uh, uh, that's all I had. We didn't talk about the All-Star game, but I don't know. Yeah, yeah the All-Star game. I mean, uh, I think there's a reason I run the trade value series every year during the All-Star break, because we don't care about the All-Star game. I don't particularly care about it. Um, yeah. I don't know if there's a I, – I could see if someone were to say, oh, I do care about it, then I'd say, okay, that's right. uh, good. This, I guess it's not like, a crime to care about the All-Star game, <laughs> yeah. but uh, it's, I don't also see a, a compelling reason to do so. If you were a player, um, I mean, I, if I, I'm going to say, I'll say this, if I were a player, I would see some advantage in not being selected yeah. to, to the All-Star four, game. Four, four days off in the middle of the season, sign me up. Yeah, that sounds like it would be good. And yet, any player who says that exact same thing, uh, I think, is uh, villainized pretty quickly. I think Manny Ramirez said that a few years ago, didn't he? He was like, I don't want to go. I tried to go on vacation, and he got yelled at because he's Manny Ramirez. Yeah, I think he did pretty clear. I mean, I guess some players are pretty good at uh, not feigning, but um, perhaps uh, playing up the severity of this or that injury. Yeah, I think Major Baseball has tried to downplay that. And I think now in the CBA, uh, there's actually some rules about uh, needing to prove that you're injured in order to get out of the all. They, the Major Baseball does not want its star players opting out just because they don't want to go. So, uh, that is less common now than it used to be. But certainly, you, you saw a lot of players with hamstring strains and, you know, these minor injuries that were day-to-day right yeah. around the All-Star game so they could stay home with their family. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Um, I guess you're going to be uh, – you'll, you'll spend the uh, All-Star break and it sounds like a bunch of other times at home now uh, because you have this uh, this dog. I, I do, who's, uh, by the way, during the podcast at some point, he just ran out of energy, crawled up on my lap, and it's been asleep for the last 20 minutes. It's, really quite adorable oh that sounds great that sounds yeah. great melt your heart all right cameron yeah. uh well uh any other business uh not that i want to discuss with the listeners no okay very good uh that has been uh, managing editor uh dave cameron whom we thank uh, i'm carson sestule this has been fangraphs audio